When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You ought to know this one! This is the Decibel Geek Podcast with Aaron Camaro and Chris Sinzak. Kissmas in July rolls on right here on the Decibel Geek Podcast. Welcome back once again. I'm Aaron Camaro, joined as always by Chris Sinzak. And man, Kissmas in July is off to a fantastic start. It is. We've had a we had a great first week with the share box interview. And so much fun. A lot of people, you know, may not have known her before, but you definitely remember her after that talk. It was yeah. Very, she definitely uh, leaves an impression, that's for sure. Yeah. And um, yes, for those of you asking, she was chewing gum through the interview. Oh, was, yeah. was there people asking yes. about that? Why uh, is she chewing gum? I don't. You have to ask her. That's her decision. But um, no, it was a fun time talking to her, and uh, I, I actually had a lot of uh, Stars fans uh, contact us. I bet. Say how much they appreciated her stories about them, because she yeah. was very in tight with those guys. And um, yeah, a lot of fun talking to her. We, I've stayed in touch with her, and uh, even some people said, you, need, you guys need to have her back on again. And like maybe we, we, sure we should could. do like a, a New York rock scene episode or something with her on because she, be she cool. knew a lot we of those We could people. ask her questions about the bands that you know, we may not know yeah. a lot about. Well, and while we're on the subject of the New York rock scene real quick, I'd like to dedicate this episode to uh, Tommy Ramone, who passed away just yesterday yeah. as of this recording date. So the That's last of the sad. original Ramones are now gone. Wow. So really sad, but um, their music lives on. Yeah, forever. Sure. Okay, so... Um, we're on Christmas, and um, before I get into Geeks of the Week and all that... Did you get your tweeter fixed? My tweeter fixed? Yes. And all that's right, good. that's all part of the list. I'm just Excellent. lumping them all into one thing. Hey, what you got there? Okay, we I got a we got a package in the mail. It's a Christmas in July present? Yes, it is. Um, it came with a card and then a package that says, Do not open till Christmas in July. Good thing it is Christmas in July. Yeah. So there's a, it's a it's a Christmas card. And I open up the card and... It says, Chris and Aaron, Merry Christmas. I always listen to your show on the commute to and from work. As much as I like to hear my name called out on the podcast, you two are always my geeks of the week. Happy holidays from Brad Kalmanson. Nice. So, that guy is so cool. Thank you, Brad. So I haven't opened this. I've uh, we're, I've waited till Aaron was here. Yeah, the, the story so, is, is Chris was going to tear into it, yeah. but his daughter stopped him and said, no, you should probably wait for Aaron. The 10-year-old in me just was wanting to leap out <laughs> and just rip it open to see what this is. So I'm going to let you do the honors. Okay. You open it up. All right, hang on. You sit your mic down. Okay, here we go. Bubble wrap and everything. So what is this? Bunch of stuff in here. Oh, is there? Oh, wow, no. Look at these. What is this? How oh, cool. 
Check it out. There's two of them. One of each. Oh, these, these are... Um, <laughs> he just snatches them I both. Took them both. These are Kiss Hard Rock Cafe pins from the New York Hard Rock Cafe. That is awesome. Wow, Brad. Thank you so much. This is awesome. It's this got the, uh, the kind of like the Monster Cover uh, logo and everything. It's the best Kissmas in July present I ever got. Yeah, same here. This is great. That's awesome. Thanks, Brad. Thank you so much. Well, that's awesome. I'm going to put this on my awesome denim vest. So uh, if anyone else wants to send presents, get in touch with me. I'll give you the address. <laughs> we will open your gifts live on air. No yeah, problem. So thank you so much, Brad. That's awesome. You are definitely a very notable geek of the week. So uh, yeah. while we're on that, I should need to get to this. All right. These are geeks of the week. These are people that shared on Facebook or retweeted the link on Twitter to share a box interview. So here we go. Keith Doyle, Cal Hens, Paul Stam, Joe Lascon, Kiss Army Omaha, David Alpazar, James North, Todd Cunningham, Brad Kalmanson, as I said, Shane Abair, PJ Brown, Wayne Cross, Andy LaFon, Billy Hardaway, I Am Hoops, Joel Hebensperger, Lee Maslin of the Audio Junkies podcast, Jody Havnot of the Strange Ways podcast, Andrew Jacobs, Brent Walter, Derek Novak, James Brendan Dunn, Chris Karam, Matt Severson, Justin Hayes, gotta catch my breath, Ooh. Stephen Newton, Ron Stroudamus, Dennis Schoen, Antonio Espinufano. Aren't you glad I'm reading the names? Yeah, I sure am. Jason Thomas Broderick, JTB's Groovy Record Room, and my favorite of all, Dave Shirt. All these people are my favorite people in the world. Yes, you guys are the best. And uh, also, before we get on to today's subject, uh, we want to plug the YouTube page. This, we have a listener of the show named Patrick who's in Texas who's over the last couple of months has been archiving certain episodes of the show. So, Aaron, why don't you tell them about yeah, that? Yeah, we've got something really special going on. What it is, it's it, it, uh, enhanced archive versions of some of our favorite interviews, and they're now available on YouTube. And what you get are images and information that's included with the original audio. So you get a whole audio-visual experience right. instead of just listening to the podcast. So far, what we've got on there is enhanced versions of interviews with Eddie Trunk, Lydia Chris, John Regan, Bruce Kulick, Ricky Rackman, as well as past members of the KISS road crew, including Tom Harper and our buddy Peter Moose Oroquinto. Yep. Now, check these out. All you've got to do is type in Decibel Geek in YouTube, and the channel will be the first one that pops up right there at the top. Bang, that's the one. And if you want to, you can also check it out by clicking on the YouTube tab on the Facebook fan page at facebook.com slash Decibel Geek. That's right. These things are very awesome. I mean, you guys love the show. You want to get a little extra something, you know, go to YouTube if you got the time to sit there and, and listen through them again. Yeah. You get all kinds of extra stuff with it. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. Patrick uh, does a good job at giving a nice visual along with what you're listening to, and I've, yeah. I've, I've been checking them out, and uh, I've got a little YouTube thing on my uh, box on my TV, so I've actually had it up on my TV. I was, like, listening to Tom Harper interview the other night. Nice. And, you're um, watching it. Yeah. Watching, and, um, the, watching the Decibel Geek show on TV. That's cool. I yeah, like that. That's a good cool. concept. And, I like and, that. And Patrick's um, going to have more coming up soon. As Gene Simmons would say, somebody ought to write that down. Yeah. He's doing um, he's doing episodes regularly. So so subscribe to that channel and uh, you know tell us what you think of it. And uh, also, we're working on it. This July has been nuts with KISS stuff. So, um, Crazy. But we will in the future be doing um, YouTube exclusive uh, episodes of the show. It's funny. The project that we're currently working on is oh, one of the most fun and enjoyable research projects I've ever had to do for the Decibel Geek podcast, but at the same time, probably the hands-down most difficult. Yeah? 
No, that'll be next week. I'm having a hard time, so we better we better cram for that if we're going to have it ready in time oh, yeah. for next week. Yeah, definitely. So, but in um, the meantime, we've got something super kick-ass for today. Yeah, I've been teasing people a lot on uh, what this is going to be. Yeah, you so have. People haven't been able to. Some people got very close to figuring it out who it was. You're but, a big uh, rock tease. Yeah. So by now you've opened the uh, the link and you know who it is. It's a uh, Ken Barr who was known as Kenny Barr during his time working for Kiss. Yeah. And um. Ken was really kind to come on to us. He wrote a book called um, We Are the Road Crew not long ago. And um, as far as I had known, he hadn't done any podcasts. And I was like, I want to find crew people because as Moose proved and Tom Harper proved, Kiss Crew people are some of the most interesting interviews that we've ever had. They've got the coolest stories. You right. Know, they're, so, they're privy to all the stuff that nobody else sees. And on the other side of that, all the stuff that you, sometimes everybody else don't really want to talk about. Right. And, uh, you know, Ken was real forthcoming. And, you know, his relationship with uh, Eric Singer goes back a long way. And, um, you know, the guy was there from basically from Revenge through the very beginning of the reunion. So you talk about a whole lot of change in a short amount of time. Yeah. You know, um, he's he was there for all of it. So you're, you're going to get gonna a all. whole lot of insight in a peek behind the curtain once again to the world of KISS. Yeah, so I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, we'll be back at the end of the show to tell you how to get in touch with Ken and find out what he's up to. So here's our interview with Ken Barr. for taking the time to go down memory lane with Kiss. Um, well, thank, thank you guys for, you know, us all dinosaurs that uh, feel irrelevant. It's nice to know that people still have a question or two. So. Heck yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, this, that's, cool. th- that's what our show is about. You know, we... You and you were part of part of an interesting time in the band because, you know, Aaron and I are in our mid to late 30s, so the period that you worked for the band was kind of our golden era for when we got into the band. Yeah. So, um we were, you know, in our late high school, early college years during these years, so these were important times for us. And I know Kiss sure. wasn't wasn't necessarily at their their peak at this time, but to us, there was a magic to that period, for sure. And um, yeah, the, the Revenge record was definitely a a, a a turning point, I think. And and I've read a lot of Kiss fans saying the same. They got kind of got back to the heavier stuff, you know. And I, I love that record. And that was my first tour with them, so. And, uh, you know, I grew up a KISS fan, uh, and I still am. I always probably will be. Right. But, you know, I think, I think the Revenge record, <clears throat> timing-wise, you know, the music industry had been changing right then, so I think that Revenge would have been a much bigger record, you know, had it not been the, the uh, weather in the music industry at the time. You know, this was the post-Nirvana, you know, everything changed at that right. point. The but rise of grunge I think, and all I think that. that period for KISS was, was great, you know, well, I, you know, I was happy to be involved too. Yeah. Um, so, ha- well, let's start out with the, you know, and we're going to have you on again at another point to talk about the other bands you've worked with. But yeah, because this guy's done a lot of stuff, not yeah. be way beyond Kiss. But being that this is Kissmas in July today, Ken is going to be f- helping us focus on Kiss. Absolutely, the hottest band in the land. Let's do it. Heck yeah! So I guess go back to the very beginning. How do you become? How do you get in contact with Kiss? How do you get on their radar to be able to come work for them? Well, it, it, it's it's a, a long story, but it's a kind of a cool story. Um, the first time I met Eric Singer, uh, he was in Badlands, uh, a great band. Yeah. And I was touring with a pop singer as a drum tech, uh, a, a singer named Debbie Gibson. It was one of my first breaks in the business. Um, Eric's 
drum tech was an old friend of mine from the clubs in New York, so they came down to a show, and I went to one of their shows, and that's where I initially met Eric. Um, fast forward a year later, uh, I was doing the Alice Cooper Trash Tour as Al Petrelli's guitar tech and Derek Sherinian's keyboard tech, and we had Jonathan Mover as the drummer for the first two legs. Jonathan decided to leave the tour because he was going back with Joe Satriani. And we had three uh, auditions in Los Angeles. We had three drummers come in, each a friend of someone in the band. So I actually, I remembered Eric. And, and what's funny is I was good friends with Jimmy DeGrasso. I don't know if you guys remember Jimmy. He played sure, Megadeth yeah. with uh, Black Star Riders. Now, yeah, just Jimmy actually uh, crashed in my hotel room and rode with me to auditions, but I helped Eric set his drums up uh, for his audition, and that day it was a, a done deal. You know, he uh, he was definitely what Alice was looking for. Yeah. You know, not not that one guy's better than the other. Everybody brings to the table different elements, and and Eric, you know, I've heard Alice say it. You know, Eric's his favorite drummer ever. Nice. Um, well, I think after Keith Moon, I believe that was Alice's main. But, That's but cool. anyway. Um, <laughs> I, I did two tours, uh, two Alice Cooper tours with Eric, not as his tech, but I, you know, I, I was always one of the main backline guys on Alice Cooper, you know, and I worked hard. You know, when you're doing a guitar player and a keyboard player, it's, it's, you're, you're juggling, you're, you know, you're busting your butt. I bet. So, you know, Eric, when he was a pro, he had played on the Revenge record and was initially going to be not credited. I'm sure you guys and most KISS fans know all that. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, uh, sadly, we lost Eric Carr, and it was not long after that that Eric had gotten the phone call, you're going to be the new drummer in KISS. Yeah. He was still on tour. We were in Europe with Alice Cooper, and we went out to dinner one night. You know, Eric and I have been friends since his first first, you know, days with Alice Cooper. He's just a good guy, and we just hit it off. Um, we went out to dinner, and, you know, he kind of danced around it a little bit, and eventually, he, you know, he, he told me what was going on and asked if I would be his drum tech when he went to KISS. He wanted to bring someone with him. He didn't want to get someone that was held the job previously that may or may not have been a good fit. Right. Sure. I mean, you're going to so, go with the, the devil you know, you know, not the devil you don't know, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I mean, Eric had seen my work ethic on the road, and he knew I was able to do drums. I actually many times helped with, you know, his drum techs with the tuning and all, because they just, there's there's a lot to it. There's a lot more to it than people realize. Well, and so you mentioned that you, that, you, mentioned that you were a, a KISS fan growing up, and it's well known that Eric was, too. So, you know, I'm imagining he, both of you guys must have been excited for this opportunity. Very, very much so. Um, I was a fan. I, I'm still a fan. You know, I, I think once you're bitten by that bug, that's, that's a lifelong thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up on the eastern part of Long Island. It was very rural. There was not a lot going on. But I, I, this is a story I've told to a few people, and well, I guess now I'm telling it to a lot of people, but... Um, the, the, the Alive and Alive 2 were huge, huge for me, those two records. And I can remember sitting in my room out on Long Island, listening to oh, Kiss Alive 2, and, you know, back when we had vinyl, you had the big gatefold with that the sure. stage, you know, everything yeah. on fire and the lips up. 
Well, I used to read the tour credits, and I knew every guy on that crew by name. Yeah. And I used to sit there and go, you know, if these guys, to be on this, you know, on one of these would be amazing. You know, to be on Kiss Alive 3 would be. And on Revenge, we recorded that. And in 93, Kiss released Kiss Alive 3. Right. And I was on the credits as part of the crew. Kick ass. That's so, how I first yeah. heard of you. That was, to me, was huge, you know. On the one hand, you know, I've been in the industry many years. I've worked with rock stars. But, you know, to be honest, that was a milestone for me, to be on the crew for Kiss Alive 3. Yeah. It, it was huge. Right. I mean, it, it still is, to be honest. I mean, I've got the gold record on the wall. That's it, amazing. It, it you know, get better than and to think about that as a kid, to say, man, I, I'm going to do this one day. I'd love to be on If there was ever a Kiss Live 3, I'd look. And then it happens. You know, that's that's got to be a testament to you. And, you know, when you talk about how you're teching for all the different instruments and all the different players and helping out here and helping out there, it's pretty obvious to me you're a pretty handy guy when it comes to the stage. I, I can do a lot, and, and I, I credit that to the fact that I'm not really a musician. I, I can play a little and I can make your rig sound good, but you know, if a guy comes into a crew situation as a bass player and he's asked to do drums, it's hard. But yeah. because I, I never was a, you know, I can play a little guitar, a little drums, enough to, you know, to, to, to make, do a sound check, but I was able to bounce around from instrument to instrument because I looked at it as a, as a mechanic, like, um, like the head mechanic for NASCAR, he can't drive the race car like the the driver can, but he knows how it's supposed to sound and how it's supposed to run. Right. So right you know, you you approach it with no preconceived notions or no personal preferences, and you can give the musician what he wants rather than what you think he should have. Right. So when you when you start going to work for Kiss and you get the first, what's like the first day on the job like? I mean, you're you you know you just mentioned you were the little kid sitting in your room looking at a live too. And then you've got the star child and the demon, basically, as your bosses. What's that first day like, you know, interacting with those guys? Uh, I flew into Los Angeles, and Eric picked me up. You know, Eric, as I said, you know, Eric and I are friends. I think friends first. Um, you know, there were times when we were out there working, and he'd ask me to come out a few days early and just stay at his house. And we would, you know, work on drum stuff. I'd go to the vendors, you know, the, the cymbal company, the drum company, whatever, and do what, you know. So um, my first day with KISS, they had already been rehearsing a couple days at a, a small rehearsal studio. I think it was called Square D. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. But um, I actually was nervous walking in the building. And, you know, because I, I knew inside that building, Bruce Kulick didn't intimidate me, but Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons, my <laughs> childhood heroes, were inside that building. Right. Um, so, you know, we walked in there, and you know, they, uh, Eric and I, you know, we walked in, and Paul walked right up to me, shook my hand, said, hey, I'm Paul, nice to meet you, which, you know, I, I have to admit, you know, I was impressed. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, Eric walks me over to meet Gene, and Gene's sitting on the couch in the middle of the rehearsal room, and, and Eric said to Gene, hey, this is Kenny, he's, he's going to do my drums. And Gene just looked at me, stared right at my face, and said, why? <laughs> why? I, yeah, I had no answer. I had nothing. I was dumbfounded. So I just kind of wandered over to the drum kit and started working because I didn't, I didn't know how to respond to right. that. And I was intimidated, obviously. Right. So all he said to you was, why? 
Yeah, that's what he said. Why? This is like Gene making great first impressions like, like he did with Gary Corbett, you know, talking yeah. about you know, making fun of, like, the ice skaters because right. of the keyboards. You're like, yeah. why not? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think I gained their respect. In fact, I know I did. You know, I got compliments from Gene a couple times on tour, and he's not one to give compliments easily. So, you know, I know I won him over, but... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was intimidating. Those first couple of days were exciting, intimidating, pretty much anything you can imagine they, they were because yeah. I'm the professional, glad to have the job, but I'm also the 14-year-old kid from Long Island, KISS fan. Right. I saw, I saw those guys on the Dynasty tour at Madison Square Garden. Um, you know, I saved for months to get train fare to get into the, into Manhattan, and, you know, and I got there at 8 o'clock in the morning so I could hang out all day, which wow. I did. And, nice. I, I have pictures of all their limousines pulling in, you know, smoked windows. You can't see a blessed thing, but Lord, I was the idiot standing right in their way <laughs> while they were trying to drive into the building. So, you know, yeah, it's true. And, and I tell you, on that tour, I think the standout, besides the rockets coming out of Ace's guitar, you know, this is 1979. The, our, our source of information was Hit Parader magazine. Right. right. And they hadn't yet written up the tour when Gene flew. It was a, I about lost my mind, you know. <laughs> it was the first time I saw it, 1979, and, and you know, there goes Gene 50 feet straight up. I about lost it. That, That's you know, awesome. It's something that's just seared into me. And, Can you imagine uh, being there and seeing that for the first time, not, not expecting it? Yeah, yeah it, don't, it hits you out of nowhere, and all of a sudden he's up the top of the rafters. How cool. Yeah. It was It was insane. I mean, you know... You you know it's coming now and it's cool. Yeah. It, it will never it will never not be cool because it's a ballsy thing to do. Yeah. But to not know it was coming, oh, yeah. I, I like I said, I, I was like Beavis and Butthead. You know, I about lost my mind. <laughs> That's great. And, and it, you know, it really was something. Well, that tour too. They all came rising up out of the floor. Yeah. And I tell you, that just it. it my first kiss concert i'll never forget it like i said i'm always be a fan yeah you know? see so when when gene asked you why you should have said because my name is ken barr and it's my destiny to get my <laughs> name listed on kiss of live three <laughs> you know if in hindsight yeah, yeah. <laughs> i wish i had said all that but you know at the time, I mean, Gene can be just a little intimidating when he wants to be. Yeah, I've heard and, that from a few people. You think he does that on purpose? Like, when he says, why do you like that? Is he just trying to, you know, be on a certain level? I, I think Gene likes to push you, and he likes for you to push back. Yeah. Um, and he respects when you push back. You know, he yeah. likes people to be strong. He I, likes... think, I think that's the New York coming out in him. He likes to bust balls. Yeah, but don't mind yeah. getting it back a little. Right. You know? You know what? Gene can take it. There was um, there was one gig on on the. It was prior to Revenge. We were doing um, shows in the UK with the the Sphinx set because right. we were getting. They were still building the, the Revenge set, and Eric had this prototype um, drum hardware from Pearl, and it was round bars with round hardware to clamp on for his cymbals and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Well, we come to find out round on round doesn't take a beating very well. And the stuff wouldn't stay secure no matter how snug we made it. Right. But the show, we the, the opening was playing one night and what appeared to me, because I used to sit just to Eric's left because I used to swing his microphone in and out 
to do uh, background vocals. That's, That's cool. How I don't know if, if uh, Paul does that now. His the tech he currently has. Yeah. But that's what we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, where it came in handy, I knew the songs because, you know, I didn't need to rehearse that. I could just do it because I knew where the choruses came in. Right. But anyway, what you know, the lights are down. You know, the the, the opening music is starting to play, and it looked to me like Gene was kicking the drum hardware. And I stood up next to Eric, and I called him out and called him a fat mother effing blah, blah, blah. Really? Yeah. And then they played the show, and I fixed what was damaged. Well, it turned out Gene's a little clumsy, and he was doing one of his famous slow-motion falls. (laughs) And he was actually falling into the hardware. Oh, wow. But but he loved that I stood up because the show comes first. So he's falling. You're adding insult to injury by making fun of him. Nice. <laughs> so you know, like, well, like I said, you said you know, like, when you stand up to him, when you're right, and it shows that, like you said, like you you care about the show. Number one, I mean, if you're gonna yeah. if you're gonna be the guy in your position, you got to be able to tell Gene Simmons when he's fucking up, you know. And it, it, to do that, that's part of your job. Yeah. Afterwards, obviously, you know, you feel bad, but, you know, adrenaline's running on everybody, not just the band. And, you know, I cared very much about that, about every show. Right. So, yeah, that's uh, not a shining moment. But I think, again, I think that was one of those one of those times where I kind of got a little bit of respect because I I truly do care about the show. And the show does come first. It really has to. Well, you know, then, yeah, then the kiss. so you do those European shows, and then but the first revenge show official shows was the club tour in April of '92. Now, oh yeah, I mean, describe what because only a handful of people got to see that because of the limited capacity of these clubs. But for those that weren't lucky enough to be there, like me, um, describe what those shows were like. Because especially if you coming up being a diehard fan, that must have been really awesome for you to hear all those old songs in a club. You know. It was mayhem is what it was, and that's what it was created to be. Yeah. Um, you know, our first shows, there was barely enough room for an 8x8 drum riser for Eric. And Eric's drum kit on an 8x8 riser with him didn't leave a lot of room for me. Mm-hmm. And I had to be there because of the microphone situation. So the first few gigs, I didn't know what, no, no one knew what to expect, but... Uh, Eric plays with earplugs in, and I, the first two shows didn't have earplugs in, and I was getting 120 decibels of monitor wedge blaring my head off, wow. and had no, I had nowhere to go. You know, we uh, the, the eight by eight drum riser is against the back wall of the club, and I'm on it, and there's just literally nowhere for me to go. Wow. Um, it was uh, the first couple of shows. All I heard were drums. <laughs> I, think, I think some of them are still ringing in my head right now. I bet. Uh, but, it, you know, it was cool. It, it was, you know, what rock and roll should be. It was mayhem. It was, you know, a spectacle. Um, I think Kiss, at that point, that was the smartest move they could have done, was to play clubs, create mayhem in every city. You know, and, and a correlation uh, 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 from another band, I often think that, you know, when Motley Crue got John Karabi in the band, if they had done something similar and gone out and played clubs instead of empty arenas, they might have gotten the push they needed to to keep that going. Yeah. I truly think that it was smart. It was not easy. There were clubs where 
uh, Eric Strum cases literally didn't fit in the building. And, you know, you have to worry about theft so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, having stagehands walk every piece of hardware in and out, it, it was crazy. But like I said, you know, in my heart, that's what rock and roll was about. So, you know, I was glad to be there. I was glad to do it. That's very cool. You see, I remember that from when I was a kid. Of course, I was nowhere near anywhere where they were playing the the club tour. But I always remember the Headbangers Ball with Kiss live at the Troubadour. Yeah, that was one of the first ones, and and that was I think we did two nights at the Troubadour, if I don't if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And and everybody's there. Um, I think I saw a couple of the guys from Rat, and I can't tell you every other band. They're all there to see Kiss in the club. Yeah. And, and it was badass. his name? Tell me the bass player's name from Kiss. I don't know. No? Carl, tell me the bass player's name from Kiss. He's a popular guy, isn't he? Hi, this is Mr. Blackwell, and the only time I am feeling well is when I'm listening to the Decibel Geek Podcast. Take your support of the show to the next level. Head over to decibelgeek.com and click on the Amazon link the next time you go shopping. A percentage of your purchase goes back into supporting the show. Not shopping? Click on the donate button and tip your DJs. You know, KISS fans are rabid and they're very loyal to the members of the band now. You know, this was coming off the sad loss of Eric Carr. You being so close to Eric Singer, you can explain to people that may not know. How how was he feeling going into like the first gigs was he nervous about how the fans were going to receive him i i don't think he was nervous because his his intentions were always good and he was nothing but respectful of eric carr nothing but and it's not as though he took the gig from eric carr you know he actually you know i guess if if we were in the army you know, Eric fell in battle, and Eric Singer picked up the flag and carried it for him and kept the band going. Right. That's how I look at it. Right. For sure. Uh, you know, I remember hearing stuff from fans. A lot of them complained because Eric was blonde. And, <laughs> I remember that. You know, why doesn't he have to dye his hair black? And I think, you know, <laughs> we're, we're kind of moving in a new direction, and I don't see that being even a, a point, you know, at this point, but... <laughs> you know, the the fans are ultimately the ones you know that are are buying the tickets and buying the records, and and they're the ones that buy all our houses. So you know they yeah. help us make our living. So you have to respect them. But you know, time moves forward, and what would be the point of dyeing Eric Eric Singer's hair you know black right. at that point? I mean, the man well, played no. the, played those songs like nobody else. You know, he brought a, a lot of himself to it, and he gave them. 
you know, he gave him a kick in the ass when they needed it. You know, yeah. he keeps those guys on their toes. He always has, he, you know, he's never been, never been intimidated by them ever. He's like just this rabid chihuahua that just never <laughs> stops, you know. Yeah. I remember uh, they, were, they were working out, I think it was Parasite, you were in rehearsals. And, and you know, and Eric's, he's real smart, he's real fast, and he's always got a quip. And they were going back and forth, and they, they started talking about Parasite. And Eric goes, well, it's a whatever count. And Gene looks at him, and he goes, no, we never count. And Eric Singer looks back at him without a, a beat and goes, well, you count your money. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm, cr- I'm cringing at that, and Eric couldn't have cared less. He just started playing Parasite. You know? That's why he fits awesome. in and so well. <laughs> And that, that's the way he is. You see a little bit of that in some of the video footage here and there. But, yeah. you know, he just, he's, he's a, an amazing drummer. He's one of the best drummers I've ever heard. He truly cares about what he does. He loves what he does. Mm-hmm. But he's also, you know, he's, he's himself, and he's not afraid to be himself, and I've always respected him for that. Now, did you? That's probably why he doesn't catch so much shit nowadays for wearing the Catman makeup, you know, and Tommy Thayer really catches a lot of hell. But Eric Singer really doesn't, and he's in the same well, situation. Well, no, no disrespect to anybody. I'll preface myself, and, and I've known Tommy a long time. I did the. Um, yeah, you worked on the same crew with him. Yeah, I did the convention tour with him. You know, and whether you guys or anyone else knows it, but when the the reunion tour became a reality, Tommy's the one that taught Ace's old parts back. You yeah. Know? Yeah, he he was sat. He worked with Ace, you know, many many days in a, in a rehearsal place teaching Ace the things he'd forgotten. I suppose it'd been um, a long time since Ace had played any of those songs. And even the ones Ace was playing, he'd gotten sloppy and forgetful. And no disrespect, I'm an Ace Freely fan from way back, but when you're not playing at that arena level day after day, yeah. you, you get sloppy. You get you know? comfortable. Yeah. And let's face it, we all know Ace has his demons, and you know, no disrespect again, but that doesn't make you perform your best either. Right. But I think, that, I think the difference between Tommy and Eric is that Eric was a, a part of KISS prior to the makeup. So he brought... Like his own Kiss pedigree with him, he'd right. already been in the band. Yeah. So when he was asked to come back and put on the makeup, okay, fans are going to have their opinions, and they're they're you know they're entitled to their opinions. But Eric had already been a member of the family, whereas Tommy's first appearance in Kiss was in Ace's makeup. Right. I yeah. think that's the big difference there. You know, and again, I think that's why Eric he'll always get a little bit of guff about wearing the Catman makeup, but. He earned his place in Kiss prior to it. He's he's a part of the family, and he belongs there. What were, you, what, say, you know, you can say the fans finally got their way. They made him dye his hair black. Yes, they did. <laughs> well, and and you know what? He's up there. You know, he's he's knocking it out of the ballpark. Um, that la- that last record, you know, the song that Eric sings, I love it. It's like yeah. a seventies you know retro song. That's one of my I favorite songs on the it. album. I'm sorry. So that's one of my favorite songs on the album. Is the one that Eric sings. Oh, it's it's wonderful. It, it's got a really cool '70s vibe to it, and I, and you know, I just one of my coworkers today or yesterday showed me a video of Kiss doing one of the late night shows a few months ago, and they played Black Diamond, and there's Eric Singer singing it, knocking, yep. it, you know, knocking the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, 
he's been my friend for 25 years, and it, it, it still amazes me, you know, that, that he is as good as he is. He truly, you know, to, to, to sing at that level is one thing, to play drums at that level is one thing, but to do all of that is just... You know, not not to be the flag waving president of the Eric Singer fan club. <laughs> I don't want to come off that way, but he does you know, kick he, ass. He's good at what he does. Yeah, he yeah, is. Awesome. Uh, I remember actually reading that uh, an interview with Paul Stanley after the new album came out, and they somebody had brought up how good Eric's song was on the album, and Paul wrote the song and gave it to Eric. Yeah. And uh, Paul's quote was, I think he's like, I remember hearing Eric's performance on playback and then realizing. Damn, this is a good song. I should have saved this for myself. <laughs> <laughs> See? So, yeah. See what happens? You yeah, never know. Yeah. But you know what? They they want to be a band where everybody sings, where everybody has their own. And I respect Paul for giving away a good song. Right. Heck yeah. yeah. I think that's I mean, part of Paul, what we love about you know, him. At any time or place, he could have said, you know what? I'm going to keep that one. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think it was better for the band. And I think. I think Paul would have done a great job with it, but I think, you know, it was a good song for Eric, and Eric needed a good song. So, to get back to the Revenge Tour, so what's the, you know, Eric's brought in, he's kind of given this new spark to the band. They've got this massive stage show with this cool Statue of Liberty set up, and, I mean, how, I mean, because you sent us some really cool pictures, and the, you know, well, the listeners will be able to see that on the show notes and the artwork. Um how cool was it? To, I mean, what was your first impression of this when you first saw the stage set up and you knew you were going to be working on this massive production that they were putting out? You know, I was excited. I was proud. I I was thankful I was given the opportunity. You know, um, I, I think, and again, I know I'm going to sound like the flag-waving president of the Eric Singer fan <laughs> club, but, you know, Eric was approached by all the best drum techs in the business, they all wanted the gig, and he held that gig for me. And there were even one-offs that gifted that I couldn't do because I, you know, I was always working. I was, um, in 94, I was guitar teching Stone Temple Pilots and Kiss did, I think, some shows in South America. They and did. rather than bring out a name here. drum tech, Eric had a friend cover the gig because he didn't want anyone else getting the gig. He held it for me. That's very cool. So, you know, yeah, oh, it's tremendous. It, it truly is. But, um, you know, when I saw the stage with the Statue of Liberty and, and you know, the big drum kit, and I was, I was, I was part proud old-time road dog, part that 14-year-old kid at Madison Square Garden. You know, it was... Nice. I, I, I hate to... I don't want to sound cliche, but it was a dream come true. Yeah. You know? Kiss on a big stage, it doesn't get better than that. I mean, come on. You it really doesn't. That. You know, and, and it was a good record. It was a record I believed in. It's a record I still love. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the songs on there were amazing. Well, most. And, you know, it was, it was you know, I was in my mid to late 20s, and it was, you know, I, was thinking, I thought to myself, it doesn't get better than this. This was worth all that hard work. You know, prior to my getting on real tours, I worked a day job at a car lot, and I gigged at night sometimes for free. And I, you know, I go days without sleep, and you know, 
And I did that for years. And, and I remember sitting there, you know, right next to the Statue of Liberty in the laser table, just thinking to myself, it was all worth it. You know, I'm so glad I stuck it out. Nice. Now, I love it. And, it, you know, and Aaron and I both saw this tour. I saw the Nashville show on November 6th, and he saw the Madison show, I think it was in December. Yeah, yeah it December was cold. 2nd. Cold as hell. I and, remember that. Um, you know, and actually, I don't. I'm not sure about Madison, but the, the Midwest and the Southeast are pretty good hotbeds for for shows. And the Nashville show, at least, was packed. I mean, there was a lot of people there. But um, uh -huh. the reality is, this tour did struggle pretty heavily at the box office for a lot of the shows. And um, yeah. so, uh, was it a was it a big downer for the band to have this great stage, this cool set list, and then and this great new drummer, and to just not see people showing up at the gate? You know, I never heard a negative thing said ever. I, I think that these guys, they don't, you don't stay, a long, stay around 40 years without, you know, having the belief in yourself. Mm -hmm. And rather than, you know, worry about it, whinge about it, they, they thought to themselves, you know, well, how are we going to make this work, you know? And, and they, you know, they did everything in their power to make it work. The numbers weren't there, and that's. But again, the industry at that point for that market was a rough market. You know, it was a ballsy move just for them to be out on the big stage. Totally. And I give them credit for that. But I have, in all my interactions with all the different members of Kiss, I've never seen bummed out. I've never seen anything but we're going to conquer the world. That's mm -hmm. them. Yeah. You know, I I think those guys could do five years of selling almost nothing. And they still have the belief they're going to conquer the world because, let's face it, that's what got them from bars and clubs 40 years ago to the hottest bands in the world. Yeah, sure. I mean, look at the so first I, three albums. You know, the first three albums didn't sell shit, but they never gave up. Mm -hmm. They kept going, and then one day, because they knew and they believed in it all along, probably the same day, yeah. the same way that you believed that you were going to be on Kiss Alive 3 someday. And when you carry something like that and you truly believe it and you work your ass off to get to it, it's bound to happen for you. Yeah, and, and that's it. You know, I don't remember who I heard this from, whether it was Gene or Paul, but it's a basic quote. If you don't believe in yourself, who's going to? So at, at the beginning Amen. of every day, you have to believe in yourself and what you're doing. Everything else will fall in line. Right. And, uh, you know, and, and the tour, you know, the tour was good. I mean, like I said, well, you guys know it didn't do the numbers, but... They also incorporated the recording of Kiss Alive 3 into it. Right. So, you know, that they got something else out of it. They did the video, the concert video. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the stage was looking at the only, only negative I ever heard was, um, you, guys, you guys both saw the show, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, initially on the tour, for the song Take It Off, we would have the <laughs> local promoter uh -huh. get local girls to come out and dance around. Yeah, yeah. I, that was my favorite and part we, of the show. <laughs> okay, well, well, then, then you didn't see some of the ones we had. There were girls coming out on that stage where it was like, oh, dear God, please don't get, take your clothes off. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, we were lucky here in Nashville. Uh, eventually, we ended up carrying three young ladies with us to go and do that part of the show because the local promoters were providing... Good Lord, you just, I, I'd be on, on the drum riser next to Eric, standing up watching, just like, oh God, no, please don't <laughs> And on those nights, the lyrics were changed to, leave it on. Leave it on. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't know. I try Where to remember. I think the in the at the Dane County Coliseum, it seemed to me like it, the place was packed. Yeah. But I consider that to be like my first real concert. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen bands before, but that if I go back and say what well, was my first concert, I consider that to be my first real concert. And like I said, the the place seemed packed to me, and yeah. the girls on stage were damn good looking. Yeah, they were here. <laughs> yeah. So we were like, yeah, we those might have been cities. the ones that traveled with us then. <laughs> well, I remember I went with a friend of mine who, on the uh, on the bad decision of his own, took his girlfriend with him. And that whole time that that song was playing, she was covering his eyes. I was oh, like, sucks no. to be you, man. But, uh, and, I'll, and I'll always remember <laughs> that when uh, Paul Stanley was on stage and he's like, people, <laughs> let me tell you, he said, the reason why Wisconsin was the dairy state. It's because all the girls here have such nice tits. And everybody cheered. And <laughs> I don't think I'll ever forget that. That was so funny. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's nothing subtle there. It's all right there. God well, I, I do have one negative thing to bring up about the tour. And, I'm, and I brought this up to Bruce Kulik, and I'm going to bring it up oh, to you. Oh, yeah. This is an important right, question. We, we had Bruce on the show a couple of years ago, and, um, and he, doesn't, he barely remembers this because he was busy playing the show. But you, since you worked on the stage, you'll remember this. That metal Kiss logo that lit up at the end of the show, the, the K is all weird looking. The crazy K. Honestly, I don't remember that, and I'll tell you why. Um, behind me, and well, behind me and Eric was an old-style laser generator that was 480 volts, water-cooled, and mm-hmm. it leaked every day. And behind that was a Statue of Liberty that, I, know, I remember in South Carolina, it, they, they couldn't use all the, the support structure at the bottom, so they went without it yeah. and the thing actually started to kick out on them they had to get forklifts in to keep it in place oh wow so i was in a hot zone um between the pyro the lasers actually i have a couple of spots pin spots on the back of my head where i had my scalp cauterized by the laser because oh, they were damn. focusing it while i was doing drums wow. so I, I that became my whole little world um Wow. You know, it, with, with, on Eric's drum riser, we had his drums. We had um, Pedialyte because, you know, it, it, it uh, hydrates you better than water. Yeah. We had a little heater for him because you can't go from sweating your ass off playing to sitting there in between songs. We had, you know, it was, it was a lot going on, you know. And, and, and Eric and I had gotten to a point where, you know, he'd stick his left arm out, and I knew right where the knots in his arm were going to be, and I'd massage them out real quick in between songs. I mean... It's part of it. So you, wow. you become, you know, people say, oh, you did drums for a living? That's, you know, what's the big deal? It's, no, not at that level, there's really a lot to it. It's almost like an athletic so, trainer or something. Sure, it's all the little things you would never think of when you're sitting in the crowd yeah. watching the show. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll tell you guys one, if you haven't read my We Are The Road Crew book yet, I'll tell you a story that's pretty funny. Um, we were up in, I guess, Indianapolis, and, you know, Eric got a, 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 a tour, a bunch of the guys got a tour of the local racetrack, and they gave them a bunch of fireproof stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and Eric was so excited, you know, I'm in Kiss, I should have fireproof. Well, Eric, at this point, had always worn karate shoes. And he was the same kind, you know, and that's what he played in. Well, they gave him these, you know, fireproof race car driver shoes, and he thought, oh, I'm going to wear these. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he puts them on, he gets up there, and, you know, we're doing the show, and two or three songs in, he goes, my right kick pedal's not right. Change it out. So I did, and it still wasn't right. And then he went, 
my left kick pedal's not right. All right, I, I've already I know something's up. So I, I swap it out, and that's not easy for either of us because no. he's continuing to play, and that shows the level of, of player uh, the ability on his that's part. That's great. Go from yeah. one foot to the other. So we we do that, and then we look at each other, and we both knew what it was. It was those stupid fireproof <laughs> shoes. They were so stiff, and they were new. Yeah. So I had to leave the stage, which I had never done before, run to the dressing room, get his karate shoes out of his case, run back, change one shoe for him, and then you know slide over to the other side wow. and change the other <laughs> shoe out. All the while he's playing, you know, Parasite or you know who knows what. Yeah. Nice. And anybody in the audience never would have known because you know he would whatever he normally did with both feet he'd do with one and he just made it work as I was changing his shoes out like the pit crew. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. You know, and you Mr. Rogers that, ain't got shit on him. <laughs> you make the analogy about a pit crew, and that's really what it sounds like. It is. It. it you know, everything's immediate, high pressure. It needs to be perfect now, not not in ten minutes. It right. needs to be perfect now, immediately. Not, and, and I'm not saying that you know any of the guys were demanding. It's just, but you know, one of the first things Eric told me when I, I started working for him, he, he said, you know, during the show there's adrenaline. If I yell, I don't mean it. It's just the adrenaline, and I always yeah. understood that, and that's what it was. That's but awesome. you know, you got fifteen thousand or ten thousand, whatever, you know, however many thousand, hopefully a bunch. Yeah. And you you can't be, oh, excuse me, we need to change out shoes real quick. Can you guys all just go to the candy stand for you know five minutes while we do that? It doesn't happen. Right. So you know everything is now, and let's get it done. Yeah. And, but that's kind of cool because you, I think that you kind of become you thrive on that, or you thrive on your ability to do that to work at that level. And, I bet. And that's kind of a cool thing. Well, it's you, very cool. The uh, so the revenge tour wraps, and then um, then Kiss goes through a long series of changes where they do these one-off shows. And you mentioned you didn't play, you didn't work the South American shows. Did you work the one here that was in Nashville for the Gibson anniversary show? No, I um, in '93 after the, the revenge tour, I uh, well, I had someone in my life who I eventually married, and she had convinced me I, I should try to stay home. And I tried. I spent most of 93 home, a lot of different endeavors that just didn't work out. So 94, I just said, you know what, I need to do, I need to do what I do. Mm -hmm. I need to work and I need to do. And that's when I uh, spent the bulk of 94 with Stone Temple Pilots. So I didn't rejoin the KISS crew until January of 95. They did uh, Japan and then Australia. Okay. And that's when I, I rejoined them. So ninety three, ninety four, I was absent from the Kiss crew, although I did do the Blaze Fest in Chicago in ninety four yeah. with a smaller band. I was doing a one off just to make money, and we were on the bill with them. And I tried to become uh, Eric's tech for that, but I just couldn't schedule wise make it work. Okay, so ninety five, they do the Japan and Australia tours. What was it like? I mean, coming back into the family, had things changed much? You know, it was. It was exactly what you just said. At this point, I'd earned my stripes, and it was exactly like coming back to the family. Mm -hmm. uh, I walked into rehearsal as a, a part of the family, and you know, hugs from everybody, which was wonderful. My my interaction with Gene that day definitely sparked what happened a few months later. You know, when Gene and I were talking, he said, "Well, I haven't seen you in a while. What have you been doing?" And I said, "Well, I was just out. I spent the bulk of last year with Stone Temple Pilots as their guitar tech." Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he said, 
you mean drum tech? I said, no, I've been a guitar, I was a guitar tech before I started working for Eric. That's what I do. And the reason I say that is, you know, he had a look like he was storing that bit of information away because Gene's a very, as we know, he's a very smart man. Yeah. Right. And um, on the convention tour, I was brought in. Gene called me and he wanted me to be his bass tech and Eric's drum tech. Gene was but thinking, now he, he how could can get we, a two for one. How can we save some money <laughs> exactly. around here? How can I save a little money? Why am I paying this guy over here to come out on tour with us when I can just be paying yep. that guy just a little bit more? to do it a little bit more than just drum tech see that's gene always thinking yeah but you know i was glad to do it yeah you know? yeah and he, right here's so, a guy that'd be happy to do it too that's the most important thing well, well the only way to survive in the business is to make yourself useful and usable and but my career you know as we said earlier you know i can do any instrument it, it really did help me in many situations but that was one of them and, and you know like i was saying coming back to rehearsals you know it was like be, being part of the family. I'd earned, like I said, I earned my stripes. I was a part of the group, and it was great. You know, rehearsals were cool. And what was nice was, you know, at this point, they all knew how the guitar tech. So, you know, if Bruce needed a guitar worked on, I would just do it. Mm -hmm. And it, it gave me stuff to do, you know, that in times where I might have been sitting around bored. So it was kind of cool. as well as your ears check out decibel geek on instagram go to instagram.com slash decibel geek and see for yourself when I go through oh. putting the o back in oh. rock it's just like a oh oh to the Decibel Geek Podcast. Well, it's interesting to talk to you about this period of time because, you know, they go from the, they do Japan, then they do Australia, and then at the end of the Australia, that's when they launched the convention tour stuff. And well, not exactly. They, they did the convention stuff in Australia. Yeah. They brought their own stuff. But from the end of that tour, we had like five months off before oh, okay. that convention tour started. That was a summer tour. Uh, I actually started doing um, local New York City gigs with Carly Simon just to pay the bills and doing a, a lot of TV like Letterman and uh, Conan and uh, Good Morning America. So there was a, a few months there where there was just nothing. Um, yeah. But then the convention stuff kicked up, and it was like I said, it was a summer thing. But, but and uh, and I, you know, I, I also did the exhibits, and because um, I'm, a, I'm an old... Star Trek fan from way back, and I'd been to many Star Trek conventions. 
So I actually was able to, you know, have a little input on some of the different venues we have to set up and on how the, you know, traffic flow and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So those conventions as a fan, you must have been, you know, really, I mean, I know it's, it's work and it's a job and that's first, but, you know, coming from a diehard fan's perspective to see all that old stuff from the old days and also to hear the band do the, the acoustic sets were really awesome where they would just solicit requests from anybody yeah. and they would do their best to try to fumble through some stuff they'd never played live. I mean, that, that, whole, that whole convention tour must have been really fun for everybody. I, it was. It was, it was, it was a, good, a, a great time. Uh, and, uh, but it was also for us on the crew, it was an, a really long day yeah. because we would load in about 7 a.m., and the, the doors would open, I think, at 11 or at noon. And it was, we tried our best to have stuff going on between a, a, a tribute band. Um, there were some slow parts of the day, and I started tapping into you know, my experience at Star Trek conventions, and that's when we started the trivia contests and a few other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the thing went till midnight, and then we would load out. So that's a long was, day. It was yeah. a rough it, length of, of time-wise, yeah. It, it was rough on the crew, it was. It was a, a good gig, and what's, what's amazing is our T-shirt guy, you know, he, got the, he came out, and he was dreading it. And in, in, in true Kiss fashion, you know, their intelligence and, and knowledge of the market, they ended up, I think they were the highest-grossing tour of the summer, and I know that T-shirt-wise, they were the highest numbers because they had high-dollar items. We had however many, like a 1,000-plus people every gig. Every gig was sold out, and everybody bought everything they could lay their hands on, and then they'd get it all autographed by the band. So our T-shirt guy was just blown away after two weeks. Yeah, I can't, like, I, can't I can't believe these numbers. This is insane. We're doing more than arenas do as far as, you know, uh, merch sales. I suppose when you're doing the KISS convention, you've got the KISS Army coming out with fistfuls of dollars ready to spend some money and have some fun, you know, so that it made it work. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I used to have a a, a good KISS collection myself, so I used to, you know, swap and trade with the fans, and I was able to, you know, put put together a few things, and and Eric helped get me a few deals on stuff too, you know, back then. You know, Eric could be out there with the fans and haggling over at the booths, too. It was, nice. it was fun. That's awesome. Well, and then the uh, convention in L.A., that's when Peter Chris shows up. I was going to say, and, talk, about Kiss, talk about Kiss bringing out the old stuff. Peter Chris. What was uh, yeah. What was that day like? You know, as a fan, again, it was big. You know, meeting Peter was big. And there was a certain, there's a certain magic with those guys. There is. It's undeniable. Mm-hmm. And there, it was... I think the feeling, I think that that, uh, Peter's appearance that day was the spark, but we all, all of us on the crew at at least, from that day forward had the feeling that something was going to happen with all four original members. Yeah. Um, There there was just, and, and, and what was awesome was, it was Eric Singer that encouraged Peter to come out and be with the band. Yeah. You know, he was not, did not feel threatened at all. You know, it was it was just important to do the right thing, and it was it was magic. You know, and, and anybody that's seen Unplugged when those four guys are together, you know, it, it, there's just something there. There's oh, yeah. it's more than four four musicians. There's something beyond magic. that. Well, yeah. that's what I want to get to now is is the Unplugged, yeah. the Unplugged show. So, this is done for MTV. You know, off the heels of the convention tour. 
uh, I mean, so how how much did you guys as the crew know about the the reunion and everything? Well, actually, I've seen video of the rehearsals at SIR for this, and I think you're actually in some of that video too. Yeah, along I, with I along, am. along with there's a really funny segment of them making fun of how Tommy walks. I'm not sure if you remember that or not, but oh yeah, oh, it, yeah. like Tommy kind of bounced, kind of bounces funny when he walks, and they were making fun of him on the video. But um, well, before we get into that, Tommy Thayer is working on the same crew as you now. He's basically the lead guitar now he's the lead guitarist in kiss how do you feel about that you know from somebody who was a you know one of his peers at the time um i i think he's the perfect choice yeah he um on the convention tour he, i think uh, please let me not misspeak here but we had you know we always had tribute bands play and some of them were great and i believe tommy was in two and I think one of them was called Cold Gin, although, right. like I said, yeah. he played in Cold Gin. Yeah. Okay. You With know the what? Other guy from as Black far and as Blue. as far as playing Ace yeah, and, and yeah. playing the playing the parts and playing the mannerisms, Tommy had it down. Mm -hmm. So you know, I, I think that he's the perfect choice. I mean, Tommy's the one that retaught Ace's parts. Tommy, you know, um, I think that. It would be great if the original band could continue as they were, but they can't. Right. So at what at what point, you know, and I think I've heard the band guys say this, you want KISS? Well, you know, this is the form of KISS that works. Right. So it's basically this or nothing. Right. So I think that Tommy was the perfect choice. And, you know, he's a great player. He's got the ace thing down. He's, you yeah, know... He does. With him and Eric, you you've got the, him and Eric are money in the bank. Yeah, they don't party. You know, they're yeah, they're hundred percent responsible. Yeah, they they know how good they've got it. They truly do, and they're not going to do anything ever to, to to damage that. Right. So it, in in that way alone, Kiss can go on for as long as they want it to. For sure. So I'm a I'm a hundred percent behind Tommy being the guy because he he earned it. I, I feel. Yeah, and I think that's a beautiful thing about it too is that Eric Singer and Tommy Thayer, you know, they're sure they're members of Kiss, but they were also fans, you know. Sure. And it takes a special kind of person like Eric Singer to say, "Hey, bring Peter Chris oh, yeah. back in, you know, give him a shot. Let's yeah. see what he can do." You know, because somebody who wasn't a fan they wouldn't would, want that. Wouldn't no. do that. They wouldn't give a damn about Peter Chris if they weren't a fan. They'd say, "No, keep that guy the hell away from my job." <laughs> is what somebody who yeah. wasn't a fan would say. But because Eric's a fan, and because you can trust and know because of all the work that Tommy Thayer did behind the scenes before he was a official member of KISS, that if you weren't a fan, you wouldn't be putting together those big old books and stuff like that. Yeah. So you can trust that if you can't have Peter Chris and Ace Frehley and KISS, which you know we all know you can't, then the best thing you can have is what they have right now. And I'm okay with that. I think it's all good. They do a good show. That band right now is good. So it is truly good. Getting back to um, unplugged. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, getting back to unplugged. You know, so they do S rehearsals at SIR. You were there for the whole thing. Um, what was the vibe yeah, was, like with all those guys in the same room all all, all together? Well, it it was weird at first. I, I had a um, I had a task. My my first task was finding Gene an acoustic bass because the convention tour he didn't use one. He used an electric bass and an amp just turned down low. And MTV stipulated that we had to have um, an acoustic bass for Gene. Everybody had to be. So that that's actually a pretty daunting, you know, 
task because you've got the monster who loves it loud and you know you got to get him to play an acoustic yeah so he wanted me originally to just get different ones to try as we did shows and and here's one of the things i truly respect about gene you know he's he's straight he's to the point and i grabbed him before a show one day and i said gene you know, that's not going to work i said these acoustics are going to feedback through your amp and it's going to sound everyone's going to sound horrible I said, what we need to do is get a stack of bases, and the first day at SIR, go through them and find your base. Right. And he looked me dead in the face, and he said, can you make that happen? I, I said, yes. He looked me dead in the eye and said, done. And not another word was said until we got to SIR, and I had 10 bases lined up for him to try. Right. So, you know, that's one of the things I truly I liked and admire about Gene is he knows what he wants, and he doesn't screw around about it, you know. So I told him what he needed to do. He, he had the faith in me to do it, and it was done. It didn't need to be talked about again. Yeah. And the bass that ended up being the best, you know, we had people, well, people had contacted Gene, people had contacted the organization, these handmade, beautiful bases that were probably worth four or $5,000 each, and they, you know, were going to give them to them to play it. They sounded nice, but they didn't sound... Gene Simmons. Yeah. And we, we got a Kramer acoustic bass, which is not, not a high-end bass, to say the least. And these things sounded like monsters. Yeah, it sounded... I, it was the perfect bass for him to play for Unplugged, because it had that it was, growly it tone. Ab- yeah. Yep, it was absolutely perfect. And he played it, he plugged that thing in, and he played a couple of notes, and he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I was like... That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> and he just shook his head. Yeah. And he kept going back to the other ones and was like, like, no, that's the one. Yeah. So then I, I had to find a spare for him, you know, because you can't do a show without a spare. But yeah. Um, so that being done, that was my first task. Um, the thing was, is I guess not all the, the odds and ends were worked out. And they weren't telling the crew that at this point that we had Ace and Peter coming. Uh-huh. Even though there was a second drum kit there and I was actually going to be teching for Peter as well as Eric and Gene, they were, there was nothing was being said for whatever reason. So when they finally worked out whatever needs to be done, yeah, it was, it was magic. It was awesome. And Peter was a sweetheart to me. I had never met him in person before. I saw him in L.A. very briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, once I got him dialed in and happy, he was happy and he was a sweetheart. And, we, you know, it was, you know, it was magic. And I felt privileged to be there. You know, you got these four who, who changed music and changed not just music, the way, you know, the way you see shows. They, they brought an element to, to shows that had never been done before, had done, but on a scale, you know. And I was glad to be there. That was a, a major milestone. I think after... After being on a live three, I think that was my next uh, bucket list item was to be, if Kiss ever gets back together, to be there. And there yeah. I was. That's so you know, awesome. Was, well, this again, conversation it was one of these, is really ass. happening or please, I hope I'm not dreaming type moments. Yeah, <laughs> like pinch me kind of thing. So, yeah, because so, you got to sit, basically sit there and watch those guys rebond with each other. Yeah, I mean, I, Absolutely. Because I'm thinking then, the, the rehearsals were probably more inter- enlightening to see than the actual show itself. You know, after a couple of songs, they started laughing and enjoying each other's company, and it was, it was really something. And, um, and it's funny because 
here's one story I remember. They were playing an Ace song, uh, his cover of 2000 Man. Mm -hmm. And I guess since it was recorded back on whatever record, Dynasty. Know, on Master. Dynasty. God, don't look Dynasty? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess the, 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 the lyric, the chorus goes, uh, proud of your son. And Gene all these years had thought it was prodigal son. <laughs> and they all had a laugh over that. The Gene had been seeing it wrong for 30 years. Oh, <laughs> wow. That's awesome. I never knew that. <laughs> I never knew that either. Yeah, I was standing there and, and they're like, no, it's, it's prodigal son. And he's like, no, it's not. It's my son. It's proud of your son, yeah. Ask Mick Jagger. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Gene wouldn't know that for so long. Well, Gene, yeah, so, Gene messing up song lyrics, that's nothing new. <laughs> yeah, you're but, right. Yeah, but it, it was to a level of comfort with everybody where they were all just laughing and enjoying it. And, okay, well, I'll get that's it right cool. this time. That's good. So then we get to the actual MTV performance. I love these stories, man. Yeah. I love to hear stuff like this. So what was it like to, you know, to do the actual performance at Sony Studios? Was it uh, nerve-wracking going through that? Um, it was exciting. Uh, I'm one of those guys... I always try and run through my head what can go wrong so that when it does, I can more quickly repair it. And I had all these visions of, you know, Gene's bass doing something horrible or, or, you know, so I'm retuning his bass, you know, every five minutes and trying to keep an eye on Eric Singer and watching Peter Chris, who I still don't really know all that well. Mm -hmm. And because it's TV, you know, they don't want you leaping out there to fix something unless it's really, truly horrible. But the show could not have gone smoother. Gene never needed the spare bass. Gene's real good about retuning quick between songs. Um, all he ever wanted was Diet Coke with some ice in it, and he was happy. <laughs> so in between shots, I'd run him out of drink. He'd take a few sips. I'd get the hell out of the shot, and off they'd go. Yeah. that You could tell you were watching something historical when the, the original yeah. guys came out, I'm sure. Absolutely. At that point, there was really no denying that there was going to be at some at some point, a, a reunion. Just the magic was there. The magic was still there. You know, I've, I've seen old bands get back together and whatever magic they had, it's like, well, it's not really, you know, what it was. When those four played, it was there. It was obvious to anybody there. It was, yeah, it was going to happen. I know being at home, you know, and watching it on TV, the kind of like the hairs on the back of my neck stood oh, up, and I got those it. tingling feelings when when the four of them were out on stage together. I mean, I gotta imagine that had to have been for you times a hundred there with the reaction of the live audience and and being a Kiss fan yourself all these years. The moment when they all walked out on stage and the reaction, you had to get some kind of feeling off of that, huh? It was excitement, but I still kind of had my game face on because you know, I was wearing a lot of hats, and I think I. I may have, in my own brain, overstated the importance of everything, but, you know, Eric Singer's drum kit, Peter Chris's drum kit, and Gene, that's a, that's a handful. Yeah. Or a potential handful. It turned out to not be so much. Yeah. But as exciting as it was, I had to keep my game face on because I wanted that night to be perfect. Right. And I was not going to be the cause of that perfect night not being perfect. Heck, yeah. So, Professional. So well, did there when you talked to Eric after this show was did he did he have the same feeling? Was he like those guys are about to get back together? You know, I didn't get to talk to Eric right after the show. The all all of them kind of hung out. Um, Eric had me pull all the all the heads off the drum kit. I think they signed them to each other and they mm -hmm. kept them. And 
they all knew it was going to be an important day, but it was, I think the gravity of it all was just, was immense. Yeah. You know, I had to get the gear loaded out. Those guys were doing whatever it is they were doing. And, you know, and I lived in New York. So that night I just went back to my hotel and the next day I went home. Um, I think it was a few days before anybody really started being able to gauge the enormity of what had just happened. You know, yeah. uh, I think it, it's. I think it's like any major news event. You know, or or you know, when a hurricane comes barreling through, it's like two or three days afterwards. You're like, okay, this is what happened, and this is what I need to do. And here's the and aftermath. It, yeah, the aftermath. And I mean. The, 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 the excitement was there, the magic was there, but it, it takes days to process that much. Right. It really does. And, so, and, and where is this going to go? And, uh, and it, you know, it went where we all knew it was going to go, and it had to go. I mean, it was, I mean, they're, they're, they're still out there doing it. So those guys doing what they do was, was something the world wanted for a long time. It's very cool. Yeah, everybody wanted it, you know, and when it finally happened, it was unbelievable. Now, you, you tell us you were doing, uh, Eric and Peter's, you were working as both their drum techs along with Gene. I was just curious, when Ace comes in, does he have the same tech as Bruce, or does he have? To, does he bring his own guy in? Ace had a guy named Dean that was his guitar tech that had um, been with him all his years in the clubs and always stood by him. So Dean came in and did unplug with Ace. He was part oh, of it. Okay. Right on. That was Ace's comfort zone. So however that was worked out, Dean was brought in and, uh, and uh, you know, he did the unplug show. And I know he did rehearsals in the first show at Irvine. And if you watch the very, very first show at Irvine, the Weenie Rose, yeah. You'll notice that Ace's guitar is not live for Love Gun, the first song. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the video closely, you'll see Paul Stanley panic and then start playing the whole thing. Yep. Uh, I believe Dean he didn't turn on their wireless pack or something, and that was his last day with the band. Ooh. Yeah, I suppose it only oh. takes once when you were Kiss. So you do, you end up, that. so, you know, time goes by and then you get told, hey, the original band's getting back together and they want to bring you on board or you were going to, didn't you end up becoming a carpenter for the band? Yeah. What happened was initially I, Gene had talked to me about being his bass tech and I was fine with that. Um, they ended up going with Mike Rush, who's also known as Spike, Spike yeah. because he's a Los Angeles guy. And Gene just, you know, he called me and said, I'm sorry, but you know, Spike just makes more sense. But if you want, we'll bring you out as a carpenter because, you know, you're, you're part of the family. And I said, sure, I'll do that. It's, this is not what I do, but I know I'll come out. And I was out there for a little over a month building sets and working on stuff. And I realized, you know, after, we, after the Irvine show, um, you know, we, it was fabricate. It was work, then rehearse all night with the band. And there was... I think I went like at the end there five days with no sleep where it was just straight through working, wow. loading out of rehearsals, loading into Irvine, doing the Irvine show, loading out. I realized that this is not what I'm good at. And, you know, I, I do consider myself part of the KISS family and I couldn't in good conscience continue. So, you know, there were other better equipped set carpenters out there. You know, I mean, let's face it, we're all not good at everything. Right. 
And I appreciated the opportunity. I said, thank you very much, but this is not what I do, and I'm getting my butt kicked here. Yeah, sure. I mean, and you're... I'm not, giving, I'm not giving KISS the level of work that they deserve, that this tour needs. So I had an opportunity to go back out with Alice Cooper as a guitar tech, and I did, and they uh, had me replaced. Well, I didn't leave until I re- was replaced, but it took about five minutes to get... I think the production manager actually already had people he wanted, so it was a very quick, easy, nobody got hurt type deal, and it was better. It was better for them. It was better for me, and you know, I'm, I'm just glad that I was part of the family and given the opportunity. And you know, I think we have respect for each other, and it was you know, time to go. Yeah. And, uh, although when Eric got was asked to join the band, I think it might have been for the Olympics in Japan. I'm not sure. But he called me and asked me to come back with him, and I appreciated that opportunity. But at that point, I had already promised uh, the person I was married to at the time I was going to stay home and try and make a go of, you know, not being on the road and have kids and all that wonderful stuff. Right. So none of that worked out. So was the Weenie Roast show the last show you did with them? Yes, it is. The Weenie Roast at uh, Irvine. Now that show is, you know famous for a lot of technical malfunctions because they were still working out the bugs and the kinks and there was a fire up in the lighting truss and oh yeah yeah so how how crazed of a night was that for you guys as a a, a crew uh i can tell you a couple of funny stories uh you guys are aware we had a revolving stage right Uh uh-uh i didn't know that yeah it was a revolving stage so that you would whoever you know because there were bands playing throughout the day right and uh, whoever you know was on the front, we'd set up the next band in the back part, and then you just 180 the stage, and you'd, you know the show would continue. Oh, right on. Well, one of the one of the bands on the bill that day were the Fugees. Right. I love their music. Well, they showed up late, and it was pretty apparent they'd been drinking, and they were told, "Okay, you guys have only got like however, you know, 15 <laughs> minutes, whatever. Your set is cut." Okay, fine. You know, so they go out there and they're doing their show, and our stage manager goes to, okay, he's giving the slash across his throat to let them know that okay, this is time for you to go now, and they went right into their next song, and he's giving a, a, a very emphatic, you know, slash like, you know, <laughs> you're done. Yeah. And they start slipping him off, and you know, they they don't realize that there are repercussions here, so he gave the old. It looks like a the lariat above your head, the spinning of the hand, and we just turned the stage with them on it. <laughs> oh, wow. They're still singing? <laughs> They're still singing, and that That's stage funny. turned, and there was nothing they could do about it. There was a lot and of now, here's something much better. <laughs> but it's like, you know, we're the Kiss crew. This is our stage. You were told you know, how this was going to be, and Mm-hmm. You don't want to abide by it. Well, that's how it's going to be. Yeah. Can you imagine um, being out in the crowd for that? And like all of a sudden the Fujis are trying to play, but then Kiss just spins around. It's like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> Another funny story is, um, I don't know if you guys have heard, but you, you, you're aware that there were the four inflatables, one of each guy, right? Yeah. I yeah. heard they had a lot of trouble with those things. I remember well, those. We'd already been, you know, three days without sleep. It was ungodly hot. And we're on the tar roofs of, the, the restroom outbuildings to put these things up, two on on each roof of two buildings, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're running power, we're pulling power where we can to get one of them, you know, and they've already let audience in. We're still just working. 
and you know the Peter one blows up and the Paul whatever you know we get three of them blown up and the the crowd go crazy they're loving out. Well, I plugged in that goddamn fourth one, which was Gene, and it blew the breaker, and all of them deflated. <laughs> oh. And, uh, oh, man. and you heard 10,000 kids all at the same time booing us for it. It's oh. <laughs> like 100 degrees up on this roof. It's a tar roof. My shoes are stuck in the roof. I've been up here for hours. Like, I can't help the breaker blue. Dang. Yeah. And it's like, maybe I need to be doing something else, you know? Yeah. So, well, but, yeah, you know. That sucks. But, you go from your, your guitar tech, a bass tech, a drum tech, and then you're going to be a hammer tech. That's no fun. Yeah. <laughs> I respected the work, and it's definitely um, a discipline, you know, and there are people that are really good at it. It's yeah. Just, I was a journeyman at it, and it, it's not where I should have been. I mean, I tried, and Lord knows I tried, but I think in the month of rehearsals, you know, uh, I think I lost like 30 pounds. Yeah. I mean, I was trying. I was busting my butt. And it just, it wasn't a good fit. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I mean, not everything's a good fit in this world. Well, I mean, the, 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 it's the reunion. So it's like a massive undertaking from the get go. And I think from what they even described in that documentary they put out, they were kind of learning it all as they go as far as putting that stage together went. So I'm thinking. Yeah. For Paul and Gene, that's one thing, and that's exhausting enough. But to be a crew member where your orders are probably right. being, being changed almost by the day during the building of that set. Oh yeah, it was it was difficult. It was definitely it was a lot. Um, and like like I said, you know, I I soon realized that this was not the best fit. I, I love the band, and you know, I truly do wish that when Eric had invited me back, when he got invited back, I wish I had gone. But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I do different things now, and, mm-hmm. you know, I have no complaints on life. Yeah, I've had some wonderful years with KISS. They're good guys. I see them whenever they come through, you know, the central Florida. I go see everybody, and, you know, no complaints. That's very cool, man. I can tell in your voice that, you know, deep down you really miss it. But I know that you've done plenty to keep your uh, – your your artistic side, you know, satisfied in these last years. And I know you've done, you've written a book and you're doing a bunch of other stuff. You know, what what do you exactly got going on? Because I know it's got to be a hell of a come down to come off the road like that, you know, after living a lifestyle like that. What does a guy like you do to, you know, like I said, keep that creative side spark going forward? Well, the first few years I, I tried different things and, and nothing seemed to be a good fit. And then... Um, Every guy that's been on the road always talks about writing a book about it. And I finally, I did. I wrote, uh, it's called We Are the Road Crew. It's on Amazon and all that good stuff. It's on Kindle. And I actually did an audio version of it last year. It's on iTunes and everywhere else. Um, You know, I I love the writing. I'm no Hemingway by any means. Um, (laughs) No, you got better stories. Yeah. We Are the Road Crew was a labor of love, and I'm glad I did it. Uh, I'd always hoped to maybe do another one or two. I've actually written uh, nine other books. They're all on Amazon right now. Wow. Really? Um, different, different stuff. Yeah, actually, I uh, went through a poetry phase. I went through different stuff. And my most recent thing, uh, the thing that's made me really happy, is um, Iceland does not have Santa Claus. They have what's called the Yule Labs. There's 13 little guys that do different mischief and they come down one by one in December. But Iceland is, it's a part of their tourism, but they, they don't really do anything with it. 
Hmm. And what I did was I took the, the original 13 brothers and a couple of other characters in the mythology. I, obviously, I mean, I, I was dating a woman from Iceland. That was what sparked all this. <laughs> but, you know, it's always a woman, isn't it? Of course. <laughs> but um, I, uh, I, I wrote, you know, I updated what they were uh, because anything that had been written in English was kind of like through Google Translate, which is, you know, like alphabet soup, and it didn't really flow. Right. So I, I took that and I, I redid it. I modernized it. I gave it a certain, I kept true to the Icelandic feel, but then I went one step further and there, there are, are 12 lost you lads where nothing is, is written on them in Icelandic history. Hmm. And all you ha- all had were the 12 names. I actually spent a couple of months really just, you know, reading about Icelandic culture. And I'm, I'm not seeing that person anymore. This was all done for me. And I, I gave actual bios and history to the 12 lost Yulads and some other characters. Oh, nice. And so you gave them all a backstory. Would, oh, yeah. Nice. And, and they're such wonderful characters. They truly are. So what I did was uh, I, I got a hold of anyone from Iceland I could. Uh, and, you know, political offices, the Minister of, of Art and Culture, clubs, anything. And I sent them PDFs of this. Just This is kind of like someone from a, a non-English-speaking country messing around with the night before Christmas. So right. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't on sacred ground here. And the reaction was great. I actually heard from one of the directors at the embassy in Washington, D.C. They love it, and they're supporting it. And this Christmas it's going to be printed in parts in a few different magazines like the Reykjavik Grapevine. Iceland's getting behind it, and I'm really excited about it. That's awesome. Nice. Um, yeah, the book, the, the one is, is called Yola's Vinanar, which is how they refer to them, and then it's subtitled The You Lads and Their Family. It's all on, on my Amazon page if you guys check it out. Yeah, and I'll, nice. I'll make That's sure I, cool. uh, I'll put a link to all this stuff on the show notes for this so people can check it out directly. And um, you also so, you're also in film now, right? Yeah, I've um, you know people think short film and they think it's easy. Good lord, it is difficult, especially when you're coming in cold. The past couple of years, you know, I've been working for many years working with film groups and trying to learn. And and in the past two years, I've been able to shoot, direct, edit uh, three shorts. I'm really happy with and. Uh, One's called Conversations with the Devil. It's uh, a two-person dialogue. I, I try and, and write intelligent. I'm a fan of old film. And no F-bombs, no violence. We don't need to see any of that. And it's intelligent, uh, the question of morality and spirituality. Um, I also did just finished one called Hallowed Ground, which really does the same thing. And then I just did... Um, the other day, I, I got a track from Moby because I needed music for it, and what a, 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 an impressive artist Moby is. I mean, supportive. Um, and it's called Hobie the Elf Out of Bondage, and it's the tale of one of Santa's elves that escaped Santa's slave labor camp. It's a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, I, I sent you guys, I think I sent you, Chris, the... Um, the poster for it. Yeah, you did. But <laughs> if you up. go on uh, YouTube and just punch in, uh, search for Ken Bar Films, okay. I have a page, and um, and you guys can check those out. And I'd love to know what you think about them. Awesome. I'm going to do that. I've got three more I'm trying to shoot this year. What I do is at this level, you know, you pay for everything out of pocket. So sure. I work overtime at my job, and that's what pays for the film. I'm hoping the film becomes something. 
right now it's a creative outlet, and you know I'm going to be at a few festivals this year, a couple here in Florida, a couple in New York. Those are still my my home bases because I have so many friends in both. That's what you really need. Mm-hmm. And um, the next one is, is that we're shooting is called Somalia, and it's about the uh, sexual slavery industry, which is something that disturbs me and always has. Yeah. And uh, you know stuff like that that you know sparks people's thought process. So yeah, between the the books and and you know Kenmore films, I'm hoping. Hoping something takes off, but you know it's a creative outlet that I'm real happy with, regardless. I can't complain. Well, any last words you want to say to the Kiss fans that are listening to this? Just keep going to see Kiss shows as long as they're there. We got to be out there coming to see them. Um, yeah, that's about it. You know, I think one more thing. You know, as far as Kiss fans, I think that I think that that commonality of being a Kiss fan makes us all. You know, you can walk into a room. And if there's a couple of Kiss fans in there, you're immediately going to, you know, have a spark with them. Yeah. And it's going to become a friendship. And it's like the Kiss fans are a big family. You know, the Kiss Army is like, it could also be called the Kiss family. Kids, sure. You know, you, you're talking about shows you've seen and what happened and this and that. And, you know, it truly is a family. It really is. Man, what a fantastic talk with Ken Barr that was. A lot of fun, and uh, I especially love the uh, discussion of Take It Off during the Revenge Tour. That was very fun to listen yeah. to. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I love the fact that, you know, he was a kid looking at the Alive albums going, I'd love to have my name in there. And then and one day happened. he made it happen. You know, that's yep. that's beautiful. I was actually at a used record store yesterday, and um, they had a copy of Alive through there, and I unfolded it all and looked. I was like, yep, there he is. There he is, right yeah. there. Awesome. It's uh, It was a pleasure to have Ken on. and uh, so, so many cool stories Ken's got. He's definitely coming back on the Decibel Geek podcast with us. Yeah, he's going to come. He's already agreed to come back on and talk about his days with Alice Cooper and Stone Temple Pilots. So a lot of drama, I'm sure, to be discussed on those. But um, those of you wanting to pick up his book, We Are the Road Crew, just go to theroadcrew.wordpress.com, and we will also put links to all of his stuff in the show notes for this episode. So thank you, Ken, for coming on the show. Very cool. And before we get out of here, I want to remind everybody once again, our home base is www.decibelgeek.com. That's where you're going to find BJ rising to the challenge oh, man. of Six Sides of Kiss. And how crazy has that been? He's done an amazing job. He's, amazing. He's linked him to, he linked him to Billy Crystal this morning. So. Still unbeatable. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, that's insane. I can't wait to hear what everybody else comes up with for the remainder of the month to try to try to stump him on this. But so far, nobody's been able to do it. I think I should suggest Juice Newton. I got a suggestion coming in for him, but we'll wait and see on that one. That should be pretty funny. Cool. Um, also, you want to be cool and stylish. You want to be dressed to kill. The place to do that is also DecibelGeek.com. That's where you're going to get your official T-shirts. That's the only place to get them. It's exclusive to our website. Along with BJ, we've got writers writing all kinds of awesome articles. I saw one brand new one, a review of the new Quiet Riot that looked really yep. good that the Meister wrote up. And stuff coming out daily there. Uh, you want to really help us out? There's a donate button at the website. You can hit that. You know, just kick us some change. You know, tip your DJs. Otherwise, if you're going to buy something, you want to buy a Kiss record. You want to buy, you know, a book. You want to buy anything. You go to Amazon. Car. But you go to yeah, a car. Buy a car. Buy a tank. A plane. Whatever. Um, do it through the link at decibelgeek.com because that way you're going to Amazon. You're ordering what you're going to order anyway. You're going to pay what you'd normally pay, but we still get a little kickback. It helps us out quite a bit. You want to help us out even more than that? 
Go to iTunes, leave us a review. We really need some high-ranking star reviews. Yeah, and we got a new one in. I just wanted to really quickly read it. It oh, was cool. uh, from a user named TX Intense TV. He says, I was fortunate to see Kiss 23 times, Vinny Vincent wow. two times, Freely's Comet two times. I look forward to future updates with Vinny Vincent. Would pay top dollar to see any of these guys play that era of material. Thanks yeah. for the great wealth of information. This podcast is a must of, for any real fan of the entire Kiss era. Rest in peace, Eric Carr. And it was also his birthday this week. So Yeah, uh, that's right. See, peace, so Eric. there you go. It's as simple as that, and we appreciate it very much. Yeah, thank you for all of you that have rated and reviewed the show on iTunes. It really helps us go up the standings on there. So, uh, Heck yeah. Aaron, we, got, uh, we really got to keep doing our homework for next week, don't yeah, we? Yeah, we better shut this down and get back to it. Next week, the focus is on the music. Most definitely. See you then. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.